You're listening to the podcast of Village Church in Burbank, California. To learn more about Village Church, visit our website at villagechurchburbank.org. We hope you enjoy today's message. Well, you may be wondering why I'm still on the platform right now, uh, because originally John Sponsler was going to be preaching this weekend. Uh, But John called me Tuesday morning, and he's come down with COVID. And so he's been isolating uh, wisely. Uh, So John and I are flip-flopping our weeks. I'm going to preach this weekend. John Sponsler will be preaching next weekend, the the weekend before Thanksgiving. And then actually the weekend after Thanksgiving, Pastor Wade Michaels, our previous pastor here at Village Church, he will be speaking. Uh, He and Cheryl have been traveling the country. That's why you haven't seen them, but they'll be back so I'll get a nice little two-week break from preaching, which, uh, which is great. It's awesome. Um, but this weekend, I, I want to preach a sermon. Now, this is going to be a very unique sermon. I don't even know if I want to call it a sermon. I, I'm just going to call it a meditation. It's going to be kind of simple and even a little bit shorter than a normal sermon. But something that's been on my heart to share at the right time, and evidently this is the right time. So uh, the title of this sermon this weekend is Holy Days. All one word, holy days. And I want us to look at our text tonight in John chapter 10, verses 22 through 23. At that time, the festival of the dedication took place in Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the portico of Solomon. Well, Thanksgiving is about a week and a half away, my favorite holiday. And then about a week and a half after Thanksgiving begins the new Christian New Year as we enter into the Christian season of Advent. So we're in that time of year where the holidays or holy days are upon us. And that's kind of what I want to focus on with you briefly tonight. Jesus, like any observant Jew in the first century, he kept the rhythm of the Jewish feasts and holy days. In our text, it makes reference to the the festival of the dedication or the feast of dedication, which always came kind of at the beginning of winter. It's what we call Hanukkah today. You don't see the word Hanukkah in the text, but that's what it's talking about. You know, few things define cultural and religious identity more clearly and more distinctly than the calendar that we keep and the various holy days that we observe. It reveals much about our nationality and and the things that we believe religiously. So, for example, on, on three different occasions in my life, I've been out of the country during the week following Thanksgiving. That's normally when I like to take people to uh, Israel. It's a great time of year to go. But I've never made the mistake of being out of the country on Thanksgiving Day. Because Thanksgiving Day is just not the same outside of the United States. It's a distinctly American holiday. You know, there's all kinds of places in the world 
that I've enjoyed visiting and places I hope to visit one day. There's a lot of cities I want to go and uh, sightseeing. And there's, man, there's so much I want to see around the world. But on Thanksgiving, I want to be right here with my people, with my family, eating turkey and dressing and green bean casserole, praise Jesus, and, and pumpkin pie, watching football. That's where I want to be every fourth Thursday of every November for the rest of my life. Amen? That might be my best amen for the night, I guarantee you. <clears throat> As human beings, we experience life in two primary realms, space and time. Space and time. So, you know, we have the three dimensions of space. There's length and there's width and there's depth. But then there's that fourth dimension that we call time. And when it comes to space, the dimensions of space, our technology has enabled us to manipulate space to a pretty astounding degree. Whether it's turning stones into pyramids, or turning iron ore into automobiles, or turning sand into microchips, we as human beings have become quite adept at manipulating space. But time remains untouched. Time remains sovereign. So that man's lust for acquisition stops abruptly at the realm of time. In other words, you cannot buy more time in the day. You cannot create time. You cannot acquire more time. You cannot heap up more time for yourself like you can things. Time is the great equalizer. Whether you're rich or poor, we all have the exact same amount of time in the day. I know sometimes it doesn't feel like that. Sometimes we think, man, this person, it seems like they have way more time than I do. But we know that it's not true. It's just a perception. Time is the one thing that we all have the same amount of in the day. Things can be unequally distributed, but not time. Well, in the beginning of the, the Bible, in the beginning of the story that the Bible tells, it's interesting to me that the very first thing that God sanctifies, the very first thing that God calls holy is time. You know that word holy is a pretty important word in the Bible, wouldn't you agree? We sung it a bunch of times tonight. It comes from the Hebrew word Kadesh. And the word holy, it's important you understand it, it doesn't mean good. It doesn't mean moral, even though it may include that. Of course it does. But the word holy means distinct, separate, other, transcendent, different. So that when the angels in Revelation sing holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, just like we sang tonight, they're not saying good, 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 or moral, moral, moral. What they're saying is God is other. God is something else. God is not ordinary. God is set apart and distinct and transcendent. Well, the first thing that God declares holy in the Bible, Kadesh, is a certain time, the Sabbath day, the seventh day of the week, God sets it aside. This day is holy. In other words, this, week, this day is different. It's not, it's not like the six other days in the week. So holiness 
as a concept has its introduction in the Bible in the realm of time. Think of it this way. Before there was ever a sacred space, there was sacred time. And then as you continue in the story in the Bible, as God begins to form a covenant people for Himself from the seed of Abraham, and as they begin to, under Moses, uh, cultivate a national identity, God commands them to observe sacred time. So that, on one hand, there's this weekly observance of Sabbath. Every, on the seventh day, that day is holy and set apart. And to this day, the Sabbath, Sabbath practice, Sabbath rhythm is very central to Jewish identity. But along with that weekly observance of Sabbath, there were also the annual feast, Passover and Pentecost and tabernacles and, uh, you know, the feast of dedication was added, added much later. Here in John 10, we see it referenced. Why, why is that so important? Because if we're going to be a distinct people, you have to have a distinct calendar. When Christianity first started 2,000 years ago, at the very beginning of Christianity, within the first 300 years of Christianity, you know, the church did not really have much of a concept of sacred space. In other words, they weren't out there trying to build cathedrals or sacred church buildings. For one thing, they, by and large, didn't have the money. But secondly, Christianity was outlawed. It was illegal. So you, it, you actually, they didn't have the opportunity, even if they wanted to, to construct a sacred space for worship. So they would meet wherever they could. They would meet in homes, which was the most convenient spot, and then various other venues where they could find a place to worship together. But they didn't have much of a concept of sacred space but almost immediately, the church developed the concept of sacred time. In fact, I want this thought to go to work on you for, for a moment. I want you to reflect on this. Christianity, I would argue, Christianity can exist without sacred space. Now, I like sacred space. I mean, I actually believe in that. When, I, when I'm in like Jerusalem, and I'm walking around the church of the Holy Sepulchre. I just, there's just this sense of, man, this space is different. There's something holy and sacred about this unique place. And it just puts my soul in a place of awe. You know, that doesn't happen in the local Target. You know, there's, some, there's just certain spaces that are sacred. For some of you, this very room. I mean, hopefully for all of us, but for some of you who have been here for a long time, there are some real memories that have been made in this room. This place is sacred. But what I want to argue tonight is that Christianity can exist without sacred space. It cannot exist without sacred time. If all time is treated exactly the same, then all of life just becomes mundane and tedious. It becomes kind of like a featureless desert. It becomes like a sterile room with no windows. There's just a floor and a ceiling and four walls, and there's no windows, so there's no sensation of passing time and passing seasons. And that's what all of life is like if, if time is treated the same. I'll give you an example. Let's, let's bring it into the realm of space because I think it'll be easier for you to conceptualize it this way. We know the difference, I think, between the Grand Canyon and a ditch, right? There's nothing more mundane than a ditch. They're all over the place. 
And the Grand Canyon, I mean, you could say in one sense that it is a ditch. I mean, it literally is a ditch. But there's a reason why six million people every year from all over the world travel to come and stand and stare at the Grand Canyon. And it just puts their mind and heart in a place of just wonder and beauty and awe and mystery. And they take pictures of it and they just stare at it for like minutes and hours because they recognize there's something profoundly beautiful about this place. It's spectacular. You could almost say there's something bordering on the sacred here. Here's an even better example. Um, In April of 2019, I don't know about you, but I remember where I was when I was watching the television and the Cathedral of Notre Dame in Paris was in flames. And here you have the city of Paris and France, which is thoroughly a secularized city and country. And most of the people walking around Paris that day, I mean, they're, they're anything but devout followers of Jesus. They're, they don't even claim to be. They live thoroughly secular lives. But on that moment when they saw the Notre Dame Cathedral engulfed in flames, everybody stopped. And the whole world stopped. But you could see people in Paris just their whole lives stop and, they're, and they're, everybody's weeping and they're grieving because they understand the, the, the loss or the near complete loss of something truly sacred in the world. I guarantee you people wouldn't be doing that if it was the local Walmart in flames. Nothing against Walmart, but it's not the Notre Dame Cathedral. So even as fallen human beings, we recognize the distinction between sacred space and common space. What I want to encourage you to reflect on tonight is that we need to make the same distinction in regards to time or we become impoverished spiritually. What what do we do with things that we fail to recognize as sacred? We desecrate them. You know, if you were to walk into my house, into my kitchen, you will uh, eventually, you might open a cabinet and you'll see where all of our dinnerware is kept. Just our normal day-to-day common dinnerware. Here's our dishes, here are our bowls, and here's where we keep our silverware. If you, if you open enough drawers, I promise you'll eventually find it. But we have this set of plates and bowls and silverware that we use on a daily basis. We eat, we wash, we eat, we wash. It's just... This is what we use on a daily basis. It's our common dinnerware. But there's another space in our kitchen. You'll have to hunt a little more. But eventually you'll come across a whole different set of dinnerware and silverware. But it's not common dinnerware. It's sanctified dinnerware. It's holy. And we don't touch it. At least I don't touch it. We don't even look at it. It's up high on the highest shelf where nobody can get to it. And it just sits there. And it almost never gets used. It gets used on the rarest of occasions. But this is holy set-apart dinnerware and and china, really. And it's more expensive than our common dinnerware. And it's been in the family for a long time, so it's very valuable. So we don't treat that the same way. What would happen, you think, if my wife Carrie walked into our house one day and she sees me just gorging on fried chicken uh, using one of those sanctified dinner plates? She's going to have something to say. I promise you that. 
You can take today's newspaper in one hand, and let's say in the other hand, you have a very cherished letter from a loved one. Maybe you have a, all of us have something like this, I'm sure, whether it's a letter or a postcard or something, something that a loved one gave you a long time ago that you just cherish. You've saved it all these years, whether it's a postcard from when they were overseas, when you were a little kid, or maybe a letter from your mom during an important time in your life. We all have that. So imagine you have a copy of today's newspaper and a postcard or a letter, a cherished letter from a loved one. In one sense, you could say they're the same thing. It's, it's paper with words on it. But you would take today's newspaper and use it to line a birdcage with it. You would never do that with that cherished letter because you recognize the sacredness of the letter. Therefore, it must be treated in a different way. Well, very, very early on, the church learned to sanctify time. In fact, right from the very beginning, immediately, the earliest Christians shifted their primary day of worship from the seventh day of the week to now they gather for worship early Sunday morning. Immediately. Which, by the way, is one of the most powerful evidences of the resurrection of Jesus. Like, think about it. What would it take for a bunch of devout Jews in Israel to all of a sudden together shift their primary day of worship. Now they still attended synagogue, but their primary day of worship is no longer Sabbath. It's on the first day of the week. What would cause people to do that? Nothing less than resurrection from the dead. And they had to get up very early because remember, this was, not, this was not when Sunday was the weekend. That's been a very modern development. Back then, Sunday felt like our Monday. It was a regular work day, which means they had to get up really, really early for worship. Really early. Why would they do that? Because that was the day of Jesus' resurrection, and they wanted to gather. They understand there's something sacred about this day, so we're going to begin gathering Sunday for worship. And that's why Christians all over the world continue to do that now. 2,000 years later. I, I shared this in a previous sermon, but it's very interesting to me that um, during the French Revolution, 240 years ago or so, the, the radical atheists, the, ra the radical secularists in France, they wanted to stamp out the influence of Christianity in their society. And so one of the tactics that they used is they, wanted, they ended up making a decision to, to shift from a seven-day week to a ten-day week. Every week can have 10 days now, not seven days. And the reason being is because if we can, if we can adopt a 10-day week and stick with it long enough, eventually the churches and the Christians will either lose track of which day is the seventh day, which day is Sunday, or it'll eventually become so, so inconvenient for them to maintain that rhythm of sacred worship that eventually they'll give up on it altogether. Now, their experiment didn't work. They ended up having to revert back because the Christians in the churches did not forget uh, which day was Sunday, and they continued that rhythm. But, but it showed you that they understood how important it was to the thriving of Christianity in their society of this sacred day, this sacred rhythm of Sunday worship. They understood, in other words, that calendar creates culture. Calendar creates culture. So the early Christians, immediately they adopted that sacred rhythm of weekly worship on the first day of the week. And then also, very early on, before the end of the first century, 
the church marked out two sacred seasons, Advent and Lent. Advent means coming. Lent means spring, springtime. Because it always comes in the spring. So early on, the church said, we must take these seasons to sanctify the two things that are most essential in Christianity, and that is the birth of Christ and his resurrection. In other words, Christmas and Easter. But Christmas and Easter cannot be constricted down to one day. No, they're, they're entire seasons. That's one of the things that we need to recover. There's the season of Advent, the four weeks of Advent leading into the 12 days of Christmas. And then there's the season of Lent, the 40 days of Lent leading into six weeks of resurrection of Easter. I want to show you this great quote uh, by Abraham Joshua Heschel, and this will kind of uh, get us to the very end of our, our sermon tonight. But I want you to think about this quote from Abraham Joshua Heschel. He says, creation is the language of God. Time is his song. And things of space, the consonants in the song." To sanctify time is to sing the song in unison with God. Let me try to explain that a little bit. So he uses this metaphor. He says creation, it's like the language of God. You know, when, uh, it reminds me of John chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, speaking of Christ. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Verse 3, all things came into being. All of creation came into being through the Word. So you can see how the that could connect if you play with it a little bit of. But I want you to think of creation. All of creation is the language of God. And according to Heschel, the things that we see, the things of space, these are the consonants. These are the consonants. But time is like the vowels. Time is what stretches everything out. So think about this. If you, if you hear someone singing a song like Happy Birthday, when you hear the song Happy Birthday, what you're hearing largely are the vowels. The vowels are what really make that song. Happy birthday to you. It's the vowels that actually stretch out the song and give it form. You can't do that with consonants. You can't sing consonants. You sing vowels. You following me? So watch this. Singing is the artistic use of vowels. And there's pitch and there's melody, and if you have more than one singer, you got harmony, and, and now music happens. But singing is the artistic use of vowels. That's what singing is. To sanctify time is to use time artistically so that Christmas and Easter are our great songs. Or I could say it like this. Advent and Lent is the church singing the sweet song of salvation in the world. We're not going to be conspiring with modernity to make the world a more secular place where everything just becomes bland and featureless and sterile wilderness. But come wintertime, we begin singing our incarnation song. And come springtime, we begin singing our resurrection song. Advent and Lent is the church using time artistically and singing the sweet song of salvation. Because if we don't, if we don't sanctify time 
by the observance of holy days and holy seasons. We conspire with modernity to make the world a barren, featureless, secular desert. And we don't want that. We don't want to conspire. We don't want to be part of that. So let's fill our culture with the song of salvation as we observe our holy days and holy seasons. In the winter, singing Christ is born. And in the spring, singing Christ has died, Christ has risen, and Christ will come again. Thank you for listening to today's message. To learn more about Village Church, visit our website at villagechurchburbank.org.